G'day, humans. Well, Australia has a new government. And a new government that is both a resounding victory for the Labor Party and the new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, in the sense that it's a resounding defeat for the governing coalition run by the Liberal Party and Scott Morrison. But also a non-resounding victory in the sense that the Labor Party only picked up about a 32% share of the total primary vote in terms of the people who actually nominated the Labor Party as their first choice. With much of the rest of the anti-government vote going to independence and to the Green Party. There was a campaign of independence in this election that's kind of unprecedented in Australian history. A multi-billionaire named Simon Holmes of Court had recruited female candidates who were passionate about climate change, but otherwise fairly economically conservative and inoffensive to conservative voters, to run in marginal government-held seats and try to topple the most vulnerable government-held electorates, most vulnerable members of parliament. And they largely succeeded. These were all women. They were running on three issues. The first was climate change. The second was the introduction of a federal anti-corruption commission. Uh, In in Australia, state governments generally have anti-corruption commissions who can investigate uh, the government and make sure that they're basically watchdogs that make sure that, you know, some property developer isn't giving kickbacks or flying MPs around on first-class visits internationally as a way to butter them up and approve a development, something like that. But at a federal level, we don't have such a body. And uh, the Prime Minister had always held the position that this wasn't something that voters cared about and that it would just be more bureaucracy and red tape and make it more difficult for uh, the people's elected representatives to do their jobs if they had to keep worrying about persnickety bureaucrats looking over their shoulder. Well, that didn't fly. The third issue that the independents were running on was gender representation, the, uh, the way that the country addresses sexual assault and sexual harassment and gender representation in uh in organisations and in Parliament. And those three issues were enough to get the large majority of these independents, they're called teal independents because their their core flutes, which is what we call sort of lawn signs, are painted in, in teal, a kind of mix of red and blue, meaning that they're a mixture of both parties. They're neither the red party nor the blue party, they're teal. And those independents are, are not technically a party of their own. They're not going to caucus together. They're not going to hold weekly meetings or anything, but they are are all part of the same push. And a consequence of their success is not just that the government's been toppled, but that the ruling party, the previously ruling party, which is now in opposition, the Liberals, has been castrated of all its moderates. So the perverse effect has been that you've made the party much more conservative. And the most shocking thing that happened on election night was that the treasurer lost his own seat. Josh Frydenberg, who was widely tipped as being the next leader of the opposition, the next leader of his party, which would consequently mean that he would probably be the next Prime Minister of Australia, now has no political future. It's hard to fathom, if you're not from a parliamentary democracy, if you're living in America, for example, how big a deal that is. Because you don't have a leader who comes from your Congress. You have a president who's separate. But I mean, I suppose the closest analogy might be something like, imagine if Mitch McConnell or Nancy Pelosi lost not just their majority or minority position in the chamber that they serve in, if their party didn't just lose power, 
but they actually lost their district or their state, not by being primary, not by losing a primary election or something, but by actually running and imagine Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell literally losing and the opposition party taking power in their district. That's how revolutionary, how ground-shaking it is for Josh Frydenberg to lose in his seat to one of these teal independents, largely because of his inaction on climate change. And this is an individual who has previously tried to do the most for the, the climate within his own party. He was the energy minister previously, and he had fought tooth and nail to get the Liberal Party to come on board the climate train, and he had been essentially overruled by the right-wing faction in his own centre-right party. And as the Treasurer, it was not part of his uh, portfolio, it was not part of his purview, there wasn't much he could do about climate, but he nonetheless found himself joined at the hip to this deeply unpopular Prime Minister who in his final days seemed tin-eared, out of touch, vaguely corrupt, vaguely dismissive, a little bit of a bully, and unwilling to respond to the electorate's increasing fury about Australia's inaction on climate change. And I think if anything is heartwarming about the election, it's that if you persistently refuse to act on a topic on which the electorate and the voters consistently say they really care about, you can only... You can only whistle Dixie for so long. You, you can only keep charming them with your marketing nous for so long. Eventually, the voters will rise up and they'll kick you out. Australians have been saying that the climate is the most important issue for them for some time now, basically since the bushfires, the horrendous bushfires of 2019 to 2020. And then we've had these devastating floods over this recent southern summer. And people are putting two and two together. Australia is the most vulnerable rich country to climate change, by far. It's the driest inhabited continent uh, and the most vulnerable to droughts and cyclones and floods. And we're seeing it unfold. And whether you believe that any specific weather event is or is not caused by the increasingly chaotic climate, there's no doubting that an increasingly chaotic climate throws up increasingly chaotic and extreme weather events. Climate change is the number one issue for voters. It has displanted all of the others uh, for voters uh, who say that they will vote for the Labor Party, the centre-left party, and for independent voters. It's a top three issue even for Liberal voters. And the Prime Minister had basically felt, had basically set up a straw man and said that the only way to respond to climate is by destroying and trashing the Australian economy and uh, banning all the coal mining and uh, all the industry that the Australian economy relies on. Of course, that's nonsense. There are all kinds of things that you can do by gradually trans transitioning the subsidies that you give to dirty fossil fuel industries into green industries. You can support research and development, and the government can actually make money in the longer run by supporting that. You can encourage solar energy. I mean, there, there are all kinds of kickbacks and subsidies that the government currently gives to miners and to fossil fuel industries that could be reallocated. And at the end of the day, if you've got a long-term view, if you think about what the 21st century is going to be like and the 22nd century is going to be like, if you want to be a forward-looking, innovative, nimble economy, then you're going to have to be a green economy at some point. So the change has to be made. It's just, do we make it now when we're in control of it? Do we get ahead of the game? Or do we find ourselves on the back foot after we suddenly have to make 
uh, a 180 degree turn and uh, a chaotic pivot because things get untenable or the international community acts before we do or China or America do something and all of a sudden we realise that the countries to which we're selling all of this coal have put a huge carbon tax on it. So people felt that the inaction, you know, people didn't want action on climate. I've seen some people on Twitter, <laughs> Ben Dreyfus was quite funny. He was saying it's so funny to see a country like Australia get so exercised about climate change when in the grand scheme of things they, you know, they have they have no impact. Uh, you know, wake me when a country that actually matters to, starts to care about climate change. And on one level that's right, but on another level it misses the point. People were frustrated that Australia isn't taking advantage of a green revolution and frustrated that we aren't using our diplomatic heft, which is a lot larger than our economic heft, to try to coerce and cajole the rest of the world into doing something about this phenomenon that is going to impact Australia more heavily than any other rich nation, which of course I should add the caveat that it'll impact a lot of our neighbours much, much worse, Pacific Island nations that could be completely wiped out but we're not including those in the club of rich Western democracies uh, to which Australia belongs. Um, in some ways, I didn't want to make this point on Twitter because it couldn't be articulated without people jumping down my throat in a small number of characters. But in some ways, I see parallels between this election and the 2016 election in the United States, where you had one candidate who was essentially the incumbent candidate, Hillary Clinton, running on a continuation of more of the same, who had a an air of vague corruption about her and perhaps entitlement in the same way that Scott Morrison start, had started to in voters' eyes. And you had an upstart uh, newcomer in the form of Donald Trump who was seizing one issue that had been dysfunctional for so long in American politics, immigration, which both parties had refused to do anything about for too long, and voters were fed up. Now, in the case of Donald Trump, he was a person offering no particularly well thought out or long-term solutions to this, and certainly not the kinds of compromises that would be needed to actually resolve the immigration crisis in America. But at least people felt that he was talking about a thing that they had been worried about that wasn't being dealt with for a long time. And so was it in Australia with climate change. Here was finally an opportunity to vote out someone who seemed out of touch with an issue that had been bubbling along and getting bigger and bigger and bigger as people endured month after month after month of smoke-clogged smoke skies in 2019 and 2020 and endless horrendous deluges of rain in 2021 to 2022 and was simply fed up with it and wanted someone who at least made the appearance of action. Now, the perfect avatar of climate action is not Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party. But a lot of people didn't vote for Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party. A lot of them voted for these independents whose number one issue was climate change or for the Greens. So the positive lesson is people do matter. The electorate does still work, especially in a country where you have compulsory voting like Australia and where you don't have primaries. So you don't have these forces pushing people further to the right and further to the left, pushing candidates that way, you have people actually fighting over the centre and the centre votes either way. God bless uh, compulsory voting in that respect. It just means that you can't pander to your fringe. You have to win over the middle. But as, as I alluded to earlier, the perverse result of this is that the moderate wing of the, of the centre-right party has been eviscerated 
Not only will the next leader of the party not be a moderate, Josh Frydenberg, it's highly likely to be Peter Dutton, who's part of the right-wing faction, who is an almost comically evil-looking gentleman. <laughs> no offence, Peter. <laughs> but, I mean, even, even one of the tabloid newspapers had to put a photo of him trying to look friendly. He's sort of bald and he looks a bit like, uh, like, uh, like Gollum uh, from Lord of the Rings. They put a picture of him with his wife smiling and the headline said, quote, I'm, quote, he's not a monster, unquote. Which presumably is a quote from his wife. I didn't read the piece, but I thought it was amusing when someone tweeted that and said, they've already got their campaign slogan. He's not a monster. Put that on a bumper sticker. So you've got him as the presumed next leader of the party and a party that, whose centre of gravity is much more right-wing than it would have been. And there was a lot of gloating about this on the evening of the election and the day after with left-wing people and Labor supporters saying, ha, 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 serves them right. All of these Liberal Party members like Josh Frydenberg, like Trent Zimmerman in North Sydney, like Jason Falinski, these are all the moderates who got kicked out because they hitched their wagon to this uh, sexist and environmentally vandalist government, blah, blah, blah. And I tweeted a tweet that said something along the lines of, be careful what you wish for, because in a democracy, especially a parliamentary democracy, a healthy opposition is actually necessary. The Liberal Party will come back to power one day, and it's in everybody's interests for that party to be sane and moderate and centrist. It's not in the interests of left-wingers, though they might like to gloat about it right now, for the opposition party to be a deranged faction of anti-vax, freedom-marching, climate-denying lunatics. Um, It'll be interesting to see how the Liberal Party deals with this, how it licks its wounds, the lessons that it takes away from this, but I, for one, whilst I am pleased that the people have been able to speak out and have a change of government um, enacted and have their wishes expressed through the ballot box, um, I don't think that anyone should be too sanguine about the fact that some of the smartest and most moderate people in the Liberal Party are now out of a job altogether and have lost their ability to sway the party to the sane and reasonable middle. So those are my general uh, thoughts. Congratulations on everyone who won, especially the Teal Independents um, who have really shaken up Australian politics and shown what can happen in a parliamentary democracy if you step outside the two-party system. We'll see what happens from here. And I would just exhort you, as I always do, to maintain civil conversations, to try to understand where people who disagree with you are coming from, to enjoy the win but don't gloat, don't rub your enemies' faces in it. In fact, they're not your enemies, they're your opponents and your fellow countrymen. Um, so have those conversations that are, that are difficult, but that are optimistic, that are challenging, and that, yes, you know what I'm going to say, that are sometimes uncomfortable. Today on the show, one of the world's great medical conversationalists and medical communicators, Dr. Drew, otherwise known as Dr. Drew Pinsky. Uh, He's a physician. He had the nationally syndicated radio talk show Loveline 
from 1984 all the way until 2016, taking people's calls uh, and giving them advice. That went on to TV on HLN. He got Dr. Drew on call. Uh, he got a show called Life Changes. He got a show called Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew, Sex Rehab with Dr. Drew, Celebrity Rehab presents Sober House with Dr. Drew. <laughs> you get the picture. Uh, he's an all-round media personality extraordinaire and still a physician in Southern California, which is where he's from. Uh, he has a, a podcast, The Adam and Drew Show, with his former Loveline co-host, Adam Carolla, who you might remember from The Man Show uh, with Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, and uh, he's got a new book. The, you'll be, you may be pleased to know we barely talk about it at all. I mean, this is one of those things where, oh, hey, you've got a new book. Let, now let's go off and wander in the weeds and talk about a whole bunch of different incredible things from the French Revolution to our handling of COVID. Uh, the new book is technically called It Doesn't Have to Be Awkward, Dealing with Relationships, Consent, and Other Hard-to-Talk-About Stuff. He wrote it with his daughter, and it's a, sort of a Me Too book about about consent. But he's an interesting guy because he started out, as you'll, as you'll hear, very much on the left. Now he doesn't think he's changed, but he gets a lot of flack from the left because he's been critical of overreactions to COVID, which we touch on a bit, but we don't go too hard down the down, on, on, down the COVID train. Uh, he's written a, a bunch of books and, and, you know, all of the shows I could bore you talking about Ask Dr. Drew, Dose of Dr. Drew, Dr. Drew After Dark, uh, This Life with This Life You Live with Dr. Drew, the Dr. Drew Podcast, The Adam and Dr. Drew Show. You don't need to know all that. You just need to know that he's a very clever and and, uh, a charismatic and thoughtful guy. I hope you enjoy this, at times, uncomfortable conversation with Dr. Drew. I'm interested in what you uh, what you wanted to do when you were a kid and, and an adolescent. Did you want to be a, a physician or a, a media mm. personality or something else? No, um, physician for sure. Um, that was sort of always the assumption. My dad was a family practitioner and my uncle was a psychiatrist and you will be a doctor. <laughs> and I never really questioned it uh, until I got to college and uh, had my ass handed to me academically. And I sort of bailed out at that point and said, this, this is not for me. I'm not smart enough. I can't do it. And uh, just futzed around for 18 months after that and uh, did music and theater and this and that. Then was extremely unhappy. Actually, got depressed, started having panic attacks. And uh, the whole while, though, I was like, well, this is not me. That That's other people's expectations of me. So I can't even contemplate doing that. That uh, doctor business again. But one day I just thought, you know, you're pretty good at sciences and maybe, maybe that wouldn't be so bad. And it immediately felt a sense of relief. And so started moving that direction again. And when I got to it, I had to really, really get to it uh, academically. And interestingly, I found that not only was I more motivated and so obviously had purpose and it was not such a drag to be, be you know, killing myself 24-7 academically, but I could do it. And I literally, looking back, think that my my brain needed to mature. Like I, mm. I was, you know, 18 when I got to college and I just don't think I was ready. And a year and a half, two years later, I was a lot different. And I, and I found the experience of rigorous academic application a lot different. And so it helped. It's crazy, isn't it? Time. 
we do expect so much of people who are still kids. I mean, I oh. when I left high school, I I was I took a year off and deferred before going to uni, mm-hmm. and strapped on a backpack and and went around the world by myself and came back. And I remember in first year university, a, a professor said, um, uh, "Have you been travelling?" And I said, "Yeah." Have you, who who told you? And he said, "You can just always tell. You can yeah. just tell the kids who have gone and had some life experience yeah. from the yeah. ones who are straight out of high school. How can you expect people to know what they?" You know, not yeah. only to have the stamina to deal with college, but also to have the foresight to know what they want to do with their lives until they've got some life experience. Oh, for sure. And and, and not only that, but I was young college and you know, I graduated high school at 17 and I went across the country to New England, something I'd never contemplated. I, I just always assumed I'd live in California. And uh, that was a shock. So it was a lot of a lot of adjusting. Where were you going in New England? Amherst College. Right, my partner's from New England, so I know uh, I know the area very you well. You know it. You'll I got family in uh, in New Hampshire, and uh, yeah, father-in-law's from Boston. Uh, and when and so, how did that migrate into into ending up being a media personality? What happened? Oh, total complete accident. Uh, the I mean, these are long stories, but uh, I was a fourth-year medical student, and I lived near a radio station, which was. Are we allowed to? Swear on this on this podcast. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it was in a just a shithole about a block up from my apartment, and it was not even a blip on the radar screen of Los Angeles radio. And I'd lived most of my life in Los Angeles, and all of a sudden, overnight, it became the number one radio station in in the ma- the biggest radio market in the country. Wow. At a, at a time when radio was incredibly impactful. Young people today can't really appreciate that you, you really mm. defined yourself by what radio station you listen to. I, yeah. I know it's hard to imagine. People carried boom boxes with them. They had their radio going on. <laughs> the car was a major social sort of feature of Southern California particularly. And so, you know, this was a big deal. The, quote, new wave had hit. Yeah. And uh, it was 1982 or 83. And I started listening to this radio station. And I was, I was aware it was just right up the street. And friends of mine started socializing with people that worked there. And uh, I got this call one day in like 1983. This friend of mine goes, you know the radio station? I go, yeah, yeah. He goes, well, I've been talking to those guys. You know, they're great. And they have a show in the middle of the night. And they need it needs to be a community service show. And they, I brought your name up. I, you're in medical school. You could maybe do something useful. But what we want you to do is do a segment called Ask a Surgeon. You'll use big words. It'll be really funny. And I was like, what, the, what are you talking about? Like, what? <laughs> but I was intrigued, and I went to meet the disc jockeys that were doing this thing, which was essentially just opening the mics in the, at midnight. It was the middle of the night. It was midnight to 3 a.m., Sunday night, Monday morning, and just talking to listeners. And um, I was convinced to go up there, and I went up there with my infectious disease and gynecology textbooks you know, in hang tow. <laughs> <laughs> and was completely freaked out what I was doing and uh, was blown away by the the fact that young people were coming to this environment for their some of their most important health questions. And oh, by the way, at that time, I was taking care of AIDS patients hand over fist. It became wow. most of what I was doing medically for the next five years. And we had just stopped calling it GRIDS, gay-related intestinal disease syndrome, and we're calling it AIDS for about the last year. Did not yet have a cause. Well, I think we had HTLV3, we called it. It was not called HIV yet. 
The term safe sex hadn't been coined yet. The, it was just a mess. And the shock to me was that the young people I was talking to had never heard of this. And I thought, wow. in, in retrospect, I thought, oh, of course. The, the sexual revolution in the 70s was perpetrated by adults. They never contemplated that adolescents would be having sex. And I was 24 years old, and I knew what adolescents were up to. I knew what I'd been mm -hmm. doing. And I thought, oh, my God, we have, to, we have to talk. And at that same time, somebody I admired very much, a guy named Anthony Fauci, was really my one of my guiding sources during the HIV epidemic. And he was saying that these you have to get out there. You have to you have to educate. We've got to get out there and change behavior. And I took that very seriously and uh, began talking about this concept of safe sex before the term had even been coined yet. Did you know at the time what the transmission route for HIV was yeah. or for AIDS was? Yeah, it was pretty you... well. There was still some loosey, you know, weird, you know, could you spit in somebody's eye and get it? Well, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm wondering. Yeah. If you've got all these patients coming through, there yeah. were a lot of uninformed doctors as well who yeah. were, you know, wearing PPE and going, yeah. I don't know whether I'm going to catch we actually touching went, somebody. We actually went the other way. We, we sort of considered it our um, pride in not protecting ourselves at all because it couldn't be transmitted that way. So we'd be maybe wearing gloves. And uh, we kind of overdid it, I say. <laughs> right. But I mean, you must have seen some horrendous things then. Did that shape oh. you in your early 20s? Seeing oh. these strong, fit young men wasting away into nothing? It was... I, I feel like I was witness to a human tragedy that was of such magnitude and there's no one to discuss it with. There's no 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 one's here to talk about it. Mm. They're not. They none of them survived. They can't tell their tale. And I was witness to maybe thousands of just gruesome deaths. It was a before we had treatments. It was just. I mean, I I literally saw men cut in half by Burkitt's lymphomas. It was just. Ugh, it was just a, just a dark chapter, and the people forget. Remember, that was a pandemic with a 100% fatality rate. Not 1%, yeah. not 5%, 100% fatality rate. It is amazing that it's so survivable and so manageable now. What oh did you make God. at the time of the, I guess, the cultural reaction to it? You're straight. I'm married to a guy, um, but, I, but that all happened before I was obviously around. And mm. uh, I mean, as I, as I understand it, there was a, a lot of pushback about like, well, if you live a deviant lifestyle, then think then shit's going to happen. Uh, there was so sort of a, there was a stuff. weird, yes, there was a weird, it's so funny to me because one of the, one of the really kind of uncanny aspects of my life is I spent many years fighting the right and now I'm fighting the left. It's just crazy. It's super <laughs> crazy. But at that time, yes, there was this sort of weird, under their breath, like, well, the bathhouses, what did you expect? This kind of bullshit. And it's, uh, it, it died down pretty quick. It did because, because the, the tragedy started getting through to people. Mm. And, and by, you know, by the way, this country particular, I don't, I don't really know about the UK story with it because I was deep in it here in the United States, uh, did an amazing job of, of defi defining an illness defining its epidemiology, defining how it's it's transmitted, finding a causative agent, coming up with treatments, using developing public health messaging that worked, by the way. We abandoned all that during COVID, strangely, 
but the mm. public health messaging worked and and i felt like i was part of that which is let cases speak for themselves and we'll just sort of explicate them how well did the public health messaging work because i i mean i was in australia growing up in the 80s and we had one of the most aggressive public health aids campaigns in the yeah. world which was really yeah. terrifying I and mean, it's still branded into my memory you had a, you had a grim reaper figure yeah. in a 10 pin bowling alley i don't know have you ever seen these australian ads uh, and uh, and this droning voiceover uh, saying aids is coming for everyone yeah. and the 10 pin that the pins that would get dropped at the end of the 10 pin bowling alley were women and children and mm. and regular people and the grim reaper throws the bowling ball and these human bodies go smashing everywhere and the oh ad ends God. with always use a condom always <laughs> At first, only gays and IV drug users were being killed by AIDS. But now we know every one of us could be devastated by it. The fact is, over 50,000 men, women and children now carry the AIDS virus. That in three years, nearly 2,000 of us will be dead. That if not stopped, it could kill more Australians than World War II. But AIDS can be stopped and you can help stop it. If you have sex, have just one safe partner or always use condoms. Always. Well, that, does, that doesn't work very well. Um, uh, well, you know what? I mean, Australia, Australia did, did better than, than other Western countries. And I, I can safely say that I, I ne it scared the shit out of me. I, I have never, ever had sex without a condom except in a monogamous relationship. And all of my American friends when I was living in New York have and did and, yeah, and continue to. That's just yeah. anecdotal. But, uh, yeah. you know, uh, no, it's a problem. How, how do you grade America on its response to that? Well, in terms of get, getting the behavioral change, here's what we went through. So we learned, we studied and learned that the, the way to change difficult to change, highly motivated behavior was not, you know, doctor in a white coat in a box, you know, or the grim reaper, reaper you know, dropping, dropping horrible messaging on you. It is narrative, relatable, relatable characters, people like you, people you can understand, narrative about those people show the consequences of their choices and include humor and music. That's it. That's all you got to do. <laughs> it, and it changes behavior. And so, you know, the young people, they, they, and so that's what Loveline was. It was cases, a comedian, musical guests, and me sort of explicating these cases. And that works. It changes right. behavior. Yeah, I mean, I suppose if you're trying to actually draw people in to pay attention, then you need all that stuff. But if you're just going to ambush them in a 30-second ad campaign yeah. while they're watching The Voice uh, or whatever the equivalent <laughs> was in the 1980s, uh, you know, Roseanne. It, it, it then, doesn't uh, work. It doesn't work very well. We just, we just know it doesn't. And so... so but we, how do we know we, it doesn't? I, I'm not because sure Because it was all do. studied. It was carefully studied over 10 years. And, and that they were having tremendous... They had no problem getting the information across. They couldn't change the behavior. Until they realize that that this this sort of case approach is the way to go, and and then what happened was because we did the same thing Australia did, we said it's you know it's everybody and everybody's at risk. People started realizing that well maybe my risk was overblown. Then they got pissed and then they then they stopped listening. So right. you can't lie or exaggerate when you're giving public health messaging. That's the other thing because mm. they will turn away. Well, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's, what lesson do we have from that from COVID then? Right. Same thing, right? Very similar, mm. right? It's all from on high. 
It was fiat, it was authoritarian, and it was often wrong. And people just started abandoning ship and pushing back all over the place. Was there, did, did you see similarities between the amount of uncertainty in the early days of this pandemic and the other pandemic, or did we get clearer, faster in one versus the other? This was so different because there was a, you know, a, a universal panic, a, a worldwide panic, and that was different. Dur- during HIV and AIDS, it was, it was slowly coming into consciousness that there was even a problem. Is that because of the contagiousness and the transmissibility or something cultural or what? I don't know. I think we have to write history books about it. Uh, There there were some major, major errors made. And it seemed to me that there's a guy that, well, I don't, I just don't know. Uh, The the, the fact that, that, I mean, look at what's going on in Shanghai right now. That's the exact same thing that went on in Wuhan. Italy copied Wuhan and then California copied Wuhan. And it was never... There was no physicians involved in that. There was no infectious disease, anybody, anywhere mm-hmm. involved in that decision-making, especially in this country, including school closures. They just did it. And yeah. it was pure panic. And I, it was the whole way to me just very, very strange. I remember I was, I had a local television program I was doing for a year during the early, the first year of the pandemic. We just reported on, up, updated on things every night. And I was sitting talking to a school board member when the first countywide closure was going to be undertaken. This is the first school to do it. And I, and I was like, well, who told you to do this? The CDC is not telling you to do this. Why are you doing this? We just mm-hmm. have to. It's the right thing to do. So mm-hmm. it was all done with no evidence. And we're still doing stuff with, with little evidence. But I feel so sorry for so many of my friends and colleagues in, in the States where anytime I try to you know, every country has its own trauma from this this mm-hmm. thing and from the mm-hmm. policies that were imposed in response to it. Mm-hmm. And Australia got its share of bad flack uh, mm-hmm. and bad press last year at a time when there was no COVID in Australia because the borders had been closed. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the context of there not being any cases in a jurisdiction, then periods of isolation, periods of lockdowns were effective in stopping it from spreading if you only had 10 cases out of 7 million people. But then, I mean, you can you can argue about the human rights trade-offs of requiring everybody to stay right. home for 12 and, weeks. And right? you can, but, but the, the current thinking is you can chain the time course, but we're all going to end up in the same place anyway. Yeah, that's right. Well, it was a race to get vaccinated was, was what it was. I mean, Which they is viable. That's, to, get, to me, that's to a viable thing. Like, yeah. And that, then in, we'll then in November, down. once... Yeah, once once Australia mm-hmm. and the the state government here uh, in New South Wales, which is the state where Sydney is, said mm-hmm. that once we hit eighty percent uh, eligible population vaccinated, then we're out of uh, lockdown. When we hit ninety percent, then everything goes back to normal. They did that. Then Omicron hit. Uh, the wave swept through over the, uh, the the northern winter, the southern summer. Everyone basically got it, <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. and now we're you know now everything's back to normal. What's happened by contrast in the states? It strikes me is that you've had this this uh, but. Through all of that, schools basically remained open with the exception of the hardest lockdowns. I'm sort of excluding mm-hmm. Melbourne here because the Victorian government went super, super gung-ho crazy kind of authoritarian for a while. But schools mm. in most parts of Australia remained open. There was none of what I saw out of from my friends in LA, for example, where you had like you had bulldozers pushing sand over skate parks at Venice Beach and stuff like Correct. that so that, what, teenagers can't be outside skating because that's more dangerous than whatever else they would be doing, like being right. blasted off to the moon or something? Like, what do they right. think they're they going to be, they, be sitting they, inside? They put steel over basketball hoops. 
They closed beaches down. I mean, the level of incompetence was unbelievable. I mean, you yeah. want to look at incompetence. Then when they opened the beaches, they said, well, you can stand on the beach, but if you lie a towel down, you'll be arrested. Yeah, oh, we did have that. We had that for a while. Yeah, I that's, remember. That's walking. incompetence. That's yeah. grotesque incompetence. Yeah. And, and it's fiat, and it's and it's and it tells you how pathetic the decision-making was. Yeah. I mean, especially when there's there's the there are these whole this whole other side of the ledger that doesn't get taken into consideration, which is the well-being of kids, the socialization you, of kids. Sat, the the eight to fifteen year old group just is, it's we're destroyed. Yeah, we have really harmed a, a, a large swath of a generation, and and everyone else is suffering. The the mental health consequences have been profound, and they're predictable. Of course, it would be like that. Of mm. course, these people were not making risk reward decisions. They just weren't. Mm. Oh my God. It was just, it's so painful not, to see I that mean, happen. Not to mention the fact that their own objectives, which is to slow the spread of the, the virus or to save people's lives or whatever, they themselves get undermined by the backlash that consequently arises from their stupid policies. Like I right. think there was less of a backlash in places where it made a little bit more sense. Yes. Uh, you know, in Australia where you could still send your kids to school and masking really didn't become a thing until Delta happened uh but mm -hmm. for the first i mean in february of 2021 i went to see hamilton with 2000 other people yeah in sydney now think mm -hmm. of what february of 2021 was everywhere else i mean that was yeah. that was the dark the darkest days right pre-vaccine it, it, it was nasty day. the darkest was the six months well before the initial that. yeah the initial at least in california which was absurd just absurd oh my and, and why why we can't look back and learn and 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 just sort of we got to learn and look at it objectively, and let's be honest about the mistakes we made. All yeah. of us, we all made yeah. mistakes. It was an untrue, clear situation. I get it, but to pretend that things went well is just a. Ugh, what just, were the big mistakes? Because I want to get off COVID and talk about a whole bunch of other stuff. But if you had let's to talk take, about other stuff, three, I'm tired what, of COVID. What, what I'm if I'm tired of it? I really <laughs> can, you, am. can you give me two or three big lessons for the next pandemic? Um, hmm. You know, if somebody asked me that the other day, I thought, you know, it is really hard to, until we sit down and be objective about what the mistakes were. Uh, I would say quarantining healthy people is something that had never been contemplated in medicine, in human history, save one exception in the 12th century, which was a catastrophe. So I would think long and hard about quarantining healthy people, number one. Uh, number two, if you're going to do that, you must do that on a limited basis. Number three, closing down economies has dire consequences, and we have yet to see the full effect of that. Number four, keeping kids out of school is abusive uh, and destructive uh, and really cannot happen again unless there's exquisitely good evidence that it needs to happen. I, I've been telling people here, I go, you know, I'm watching women and children go over the border from the Ukraine into Poland and the and they the reporters are shoving microphones in these women's face and the first thing they say is yeah we're worried about the men left behind it was terrible but these kids have been out of school for 2 weeks they've been out for 2 weeks we have to get them back in school and they're putting me in Polish speaking schools and go go to school you can't be out of school more than 2 weeks that's insane yeah in 2 years You're like two years. come to come to Pasadena yeah, two years like. yeah uh okay well i asked you for two or three and you gave me four yep. so i owe you a beer uh, at some stage right, fair enough. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be awkward is uh, your new book uh, dealing with relationships consent and hard to talk about stuff you, mm -hmm. i mean your other book is about addiction and i think these are two of the huge looming 
uncomfortable things that people feel weird about talking about is really (laughs) that's odd to me that people wouldn't want to talk about addiction here they talk about it all the time well they talk about the problem of addiction i don't mean that they don't talk about the problem of addiction i mean that personally it's uncomfortable for us to open up about the about substances that we misuse is that not the case in your well you know people people and by the way my my book before it doesn't have to be awkward was a book on narcissism and i see that more as the the threatening (laughs) the Mm. the phenomenon that they're the yes right why we're having the phenomenological experiences we're having here but uh, as far as addiction goes you know there's a lot of people that i hear complaining about a stigma around addiction i have treated ten thousand drug addicts never has one of them even gotten near complaining about stigma to me that is not their concern is i'm in pain i want more drugs uh that's it okay (laughs) so so maybe yeah yeah no that's a good clarification maybe what i'm talking about is the fact that i'm assuming that there's some kind of a spectrum of misuse here that uh i mean i i didn't i haven't drunk in about 18 months uh i didn't go through any program uh i just felt like it was just the the daily getting home and pouring a glass of wine because it was a habit Mm -hmm. and then the reward the kind of reward the way it landed for me as a reward every time i'd get on a plane or i'd be in the lounge oh here's a good you know now i get to have a vodka now i get to have this it was not me making choices anymore it was just a backdrop to my life and it was mm-hmm. in a sufficiently large quantity and i think this is true of many many australians and certainly most of my friends i come from new zealand irish stock mm-hmm. uh and aussie so you know heavy drinkers and that's just part of life and then you know some proportion of you when you're 65 get liver cancer or some other related disease and uh, and you're off and i i just had kids i didn't want to i didn't want that to happen that kind of thing I don't think we talk about, and we don't talk about the quiet ways in which we might be, you know, having, I don't know, popping a couple of codeine before bed or whatever else makes us feel good. Or that's the, it's the, those edge cases, not the, I'm an addict and I need help cases. So substance abuse rather than substance addiction, really. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And people do talk about it a lot here. They do. They love talking about it. Uh, it's the the common the common discourse is the mom and white wine. That that's the that's the new version right. of our alcohol yes. abuse in this country. Right. Right. Uh, and people who have momentum with pills, I mean, it happens all the time. That you know the overprescribing was you know massively. Yeah, well, ninety percent of the Vicodin prescribed on Earth uh, by the time they got control of this problem was being prescribed here in the United States. So uh, the, yeah. the pill problem was ridiculous you know what what i did have i've done begun to zero in on though is you know i had to fight that pill epidemic tooth and nail for a decade uh, and my peers were killing my patients routinely with the overprescribing of opiates and you know i was told i was a dinosaur and i wasn't interested in patient comfort and the joint commission of hospital accreditation was up my took i took us and the department of mental health and my hospital administration I mean, this was, you know, pain was the fifth vital sign and it needed to be controlled. It was horrible. But I learned through looking at that and looking now in the case of COVID in this country, we have a lot of people trained in public health and they were locked and loaded for a pandemic. It, like, like this was their, been waiting for this to, to lay it out. And I thought, boy, 
when it comes to medicine in particular, and this, but this might be a more generalizable phenomenon, which is that when authority gets centralized, which is common in medicine, we have, you know, academic centralization, but when it becomes centralized and dogmatic, and when the leaders in those centralized authorities go on a holy mission of some type, a holy mission to eliminate pain, a holy mission to zero COVID, a mm. holy mission to end mental illness. So we're going to do psychosurgeries and we're going to get a Nobel Prize to the guy that invents the lobotomy. And we're going to be on a holy mission. I mean, there's one holy mission after another that causes unbelievable devastation for humans. So mm. beware centralized authority on a mission. That's how yes. we get ourselves into trouble, it seems to me. And so on opioids, when you say that your colleagues were killing patients, is it the, was it the actual uh, drugs that they were prescribing that was killing them, or yes. was it the consequent addiction that drove the people to then no, go and they, get street the, drugs? No, the, that came much later. They, the 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 doctors themselves were giving them sufficient quantities of the combination of opiate and benzodiazepine. It is that combo wow. that is fatal. Wow! It happened. I was dealing with that constantly. And what were their repercussions for the physicians? No, and they still do it to this day. The crazy thing, but, but I mean, but, it says on the side of a well, of a pack of Valium uh, or Xanax, you can't take this with a you know with uh, I don't know tramadol or you know yeah, some some synthetic right. opioid, and it mm -hmm. says on the other that. In fact, I was just googling this because I was just in Thailand on a on a vacation with with my kids and. Uh, and I went in and asked for ibuprofen because uh, I had a headache. Now, ibuprofen, you can't get over the counter in Thailand. Mm -hmm. So, and I didn't want uh, paracetamol, what you call acetaminophen, and mm -hmm. uh, it's not, I don't find it very effective. So she hands me tramadol, mm -hmm. which is an, opi an mm -hmm. opioid. It's a weak opiate, yeah. And uh, I, I take it and it kind of gives me a nice buzz and the, and the pain goes away. What? So can you chart the course for me? I mean, presumably it's not bad enough that, you know, a whole bunch of Thai people aren't hopefully getting addicted to it and ending up dying. Mm -hmm. But on the side of the pack, it said, because I, then I couldn't sleep. And so I had some Xanax for the, fl for the flight and I saw, I Googled it and mm -hmm. I was like, oh, oh, oh don't take mm -hmm. Xanax with, with Tramadol. Uh, what's the, chart the course for me between that and me ending up uh, either dead or with my well, kidneys impaired or in a gutter. Yeah, I mean, you're 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 kind of zeroing in on this issue of when somebody crosses the threshold into addiction. When, when do you lose control? When is it a disorder? When when are you abusing? When is it you have it under control? When is it a potential problem? And when is it actually a problem? And when it's escalating in spite of consequences, and there's a family history, it's a genetic disorder. You have to have that potential for it. Uh, so if you can see a family history, you see the consequences, and there's escalation. Usually, it is the opiates that drive it, right? And so you're using the opiates, escalating doses, and now you end up in chronic withdrawal. So now you have back pain and headache. You're also going through withdrawal at night, and so you're not sleeping. So you go and you raise hell with the doctor, and he gives you some Ambien or some Xanax or some Clonopin. Well, that works a little bit. But it's also during the day now I'm feeling irritable and you know, and, and out of sorts. So I'm just going to take this Xanax during the day. And I certainly need more now at night. And mm. oh, that's it. And, and right. pretty soon they're not breathing. And when you say that you have a family history, is that a family history of any addiction? Do those addiction yeah. pathways work the same for alcohol yeah. as they do for opioids? I mean, generally speaking. Yeah. Generally speaking, that's true. What is it? Do we know? There's a lot of candidate genes. I, I mean, it is essentially the ventral tegmental firing into the what's called the shell of the nucleus accumbens. There's 
a series of intracytoplasmic mechanisms that are triggered. Uh, and in some genetically prone individuals, those cytoplasmic transporters change permanently. There are those and, big and, words that you took from college, the radio station. There you go. Oh, I finally got it right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, 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 and there's thought to be even genetic upregulation and changing that, again, if you're, if you're set up for that, it happens. And there's different genes and different mechanisms activated at different stages of the addiction cycle, right? Um, but they're pretty well laid out. They're pretty well laid out. And, and so the problem is that addiction is a disorder of motivation. So you can get anybody off drugs or alcohol. It's pretty easy. But keeping them off is the illness part mm. because the, Ill, the, the motivational disturbance takes over all the other brain functions that we're used to relying on our reasoning, our thinking, uh, our feeling states. And so we start thinking things are good ideas that will eventually lead us back to the using because the brain is now, literally the brain manipulates itself. Mm. And then when you're back in the using, even if you dip your toe into it, presumably that also then generates thoughts that link your yeah. well-being and your satisfaction to the use which makes that, it harder that, to and again it's it's what we call stinking thinking the brain tricks itself and it just escalates it's it's a progressive thing this is the part that in this country people seem weirdly uh, sort of naive to which is addiction is progressive particularly a strong these pharmaceutical addictions progressive ends in death if you don't interfere with the progression it does not go well right isn't the easiest thing then to say, don't start? Oh, sure. But that's unrealistic in many situations. I mean, the bigger, the more interesting question is, why do people start? And so they start typically, if somebody's going to have an addiction problem, they start because of childhood trauma. And, and the issue that they're trying to manage as a result of that trauma is emotional dysregulation and a, a background of emotional pain that is walled off from access because of how trauma affects the brain. People think they've, quote, gotten over it, but it's there as a source of constant discomfort and it's sort of always looking for attention. And it, uh, you know, when you find something that works, you're aware of it. It, it mm. you may feel good for, you may feel like okay in your skin for the first time in your life. And when the culture says this stuff that you smoke is a natural herb and it's good for you, yeah, start with that, Sure. And, you know, your friend's got a little bit of Vicodin or something, oh, whatever. It's, you know, Sally was using it at the party the other night. And, of course, alcohol, everyone drinks. What's the big deal? And off it goes. Yeah. And when I say don't start, I don't mean to channel a kind of Nancy Reagan worldview, which is just just say no to drugs, but rather yeah. if from the physician's eye view, uh, why, are we di why are we using these things? Anyway, I mean, I don't know. Do you, what do you think about the sort of safe prescription of opioids? Are they actually necessary and effective for, yeah, for pain? I mean, people, I'm not saying people should suffer. And if you have a surgery, you're going to need some opiates. That, that's, you know, the, the, if you study the, you know, the advent of opiate pain medication, it was a, it was a miracle. It was a magic, a hypodermic needle, which was invented around the same time as Certner brought in morphine sulfate. Uh, it was a magic wand. I mean, you could deal with, you could take away human suffering for the first time in history. It was, oh my God. And we just didn't understand that it could be overdone. And right. we had our first opioid epidemic in this country was in the 1890s. And uh, then we developed very stringent laws against it. Physicians were scared shitless to prescribe it. 
then a movement developed in the 70s and 80s to treat cancer pain more appropriately. Imagine this. We weren't treating cancer pain. Wow. I mean, think of how horrible that is. Mm. A- and and then that got carried away. And that's where the that's where it got going. Because a group that was originally there treating cancer pain went on a holy mission to eliminate pain altogether. And anything else was, quote, opiophobia. You mentioned uh, that, you know, there's this illusion that, oh, if you smoke a natural herb, then uh, yeah. it's not going to lead you any bad places. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, now there's been this revolution in the legalization of uh, cannabis in the United States mm-hmm. that hasn't been copied in uh, in Australia or the UK yet. But I know friends and family members who who treat it like alcohol and, you know, have it three or four times a, a week to chill out by the in front of the TV. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the the uh, you know the amount of opiates that were being taken in the 1890s i mean my understanding was that when it was legal that you know you had your oscar wilde sort of puffing on opium pipes mm-hmm. occasionally and it mm-hmm. wasn't the deranging dysfunction that a heroin addict currently endures thanks to the war on drugs what's your position on on the legal status of this stuff uh i don't care you know i I'll, i don't feel like my job is to not that i don't care i don't think it's my business to determine the law the people determine the law and I'll deal with whatever the consequence is of that. Um, the cannabis thing, yeah, there are plenty of people that can use it quite nicely, but there are plenty of people that get in trouble with it too. Mm. And unfortunately, you're not allowed to talk about it, so it's weird. You're, you know, there's this weird, still political energy around it, even though I've seen some real serious problems. What do you mean you're not allowed to talk about it? weren't you saying earlier that uh, everyone's kind of banging on about addiction? Not about weed isn't addictive. Oh, how dare you? How <laughs> dare you? So, yeah. So, you think there's yeah, more but, of us? But, but to, to be fair to people that argue that, look, alcohol, way worse in terms of cancer and, and, and you know, years of productivity lost. And you name that you name the parameter, alcohol is worse. And yet that one's legal. Right. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Uh, narcissism. Why does it mm. underpin so much of this? What is it for a start? Well, narcissism is what comes out of these terribly dysfunctional childhood childhoods we've been having, particularly in this country. Abandonment, neglect, abuse, which is, talk about a pandemic. That has been a pandemic. We call them also under the rubric of adverse childhood experiences. And it's uncommon not to have had at least two adverse childhood experiences. And if you have three, your risk of mental health problems goes way up. And so the the injury... I, I mean, just I'll just sketch it fundamentally that humans normally develop the capacity for regulating emotions through close contact with primary caretakers. And when people are injured, it's like, you know, when they have a abuse of some type, when they're traumatized and, and the, the, one of the criteria of trauma really is the, the sense of that they really their their ability to survive is in question. They're, they're they're terrified, and part of that response is a freeze response, which is mediated by the vagal nerve. And it turns out when that is stimulated early and often, it changes the development of certain regions of the brain. It keeps us dependent on dissociation, which is what the vagus nerve mediates, sort of disconnecting from feeling states as our primary means of regulating emotions. It prevents us from developing emotionally, and it prevents us from developing the landscape of emotional regulation. So feelings are always too prolonged, too intense, and too negative. And part of that stuckness includes how our personalities develop. 
and narcissism, narcissistic injury tends to result in narcissistic traits and often narcissistic disorders. So in the early 80s, mid 80s, when I was first working at a psychiatric hospital, I ended up working there for 30 years, I noticed that the the category of personality disorders was changing all, very quickly, where the usual range or array of personality disorders were suddenly clustering around the B type, the cluster B, the narcissistic disorders. And by the 90s, that is all we had. That was it, only narcissistic disorders. Hmm. Neur- it was uh, borderline sociopath, narcissism, and a, a smattering of histrionic. And that was it. And I got kind of interested in that, what, what's going on. And of course, while I was doing the radio at the time, then all I was talking to was ki- traumatized kids, every call sexual abuse, mm. physical abuse, neglect, mm. chaos in the home, just every single call. And of course, they were calling about dysfunctional relationships because that's where the craziness gets acted out when you've been injured like that. It becomes difficult to maintain relationships for various reasons. So I, I could see the narcissism rising. I could just see it. Right. It was obvious. And it was obvious to me what the cause was. Now, the interesting thing was what was left out of that book was I wanted to write a book about the French Revolution and uh, the Aztecs because that was the only group, the only period of history I could find where severe abuse of children was pandemic, was just huh. routine. Right. Uh, you know, the French, you know, around Rousseau's era yeah. routinely just dumped kids off at, a, at an orphanage. Yeah. Only one out of five survived. I mean, this yeah. was horrible. Rousseau, the, 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 the great uh, descriptor of the, 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 what are the, what was it called? The native soul, the, the, the uh, well, you know, he was he so was romantic, a, wasn't he? Yeah, it was, it was very about, romantic. About the, you third know, world people and the, you know, native. You know, they were just yeah. living off the land and peacefully. Yeah. He was a shithead of colossal Yeah, proportion. oh, totally. I mean, a he lot of what, fun. yeah, yeah a ahead. lot of what he was doing, I think, was just criticizing the, the French regime and using, yeah. you know, he, yeah. he didn't even travel to these places. He was just right. talking about how glorious life was for, yeah. you know, these nude na- natives right. elsewhere the meantime, as, a, as he, a means of criticizing he, France. He dragged around this one woman as his sex slave, had five children with her that he, he forced her to leave them all at the footsteps of an orphanage. I mean, it just, it just was a horrible dude. And the, no, anyway, let's get off Rousseau. But, but um, I'm interested that you wanted to write a book about that. Did you, did you start researching it? Did you get any I did, and, I, and I, found, I found, you know, the Aztecs had the thing called the Codex, which was a systematic way to abuse children violently. And, you know, and look at what came out of it. What was and that? What did they do? They'd hold them over fires. They'd beat them. They'd pierce them. They, they, it was just one, you know, just this way, just, wow. you know, systematic abuse. Was that a yeah. rite of passage kind of thing? Or no, a- this is little children to turn them into great warriors. Wow. That, which is what that does. That creates violent maniacs. Right. And when you have a population of violent maniacs on your hand, you have to find a way to focus that aggression so they don't turn it on themselves or each other. And that is the scapegoating mechanism. And this is, you know, Rene Girard had a very famous sort of synthesis of this, but I think it's more explicit. Mm. I think it's really psychological that humans in mobs, if they've had a lot of injury and are very aggressive, they have to scapegoat one on a, on a regular basis. And thus, we have to kill somebody every day or we'll start killing each other. Right. Uh, thus, the guillotines. And then, of course, the mob action, when the guillotines come out, 
is nobody's pure enough. Everybody's a sinner. Eventually, everybody goes on the guillotine. This is what people don't get in right. the whole cancel culture of today. It's coming for mm. everybody. Mm. Nobody gets left out. It just come, It's just a mob behavior. Mm. And it just seemed to me, I wrote the book in like, probably it was 2004 or something. I don't know if it was that long ago. And I just thought, I think we're going to see guillotines, something like that. Some, there's going to be a scapegoating mechanism. And I never heard of social media at the time and could not have imagined something like cancel culture. But here we are. Here we are. It's interesting that you bring that kind of medical perspective to it, because I always come at that phenomenon from a, a cultural perspective as being people are, uh, being essentially taught uh, worldviews of victimization, of fragility, of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a kind of, it's, it's almost a pseudo-religious movement. Uh, there's a mm -hmm. lot of piety. Uh, and uh, so the idea that it's actually stemming from some sort of childhood trauma that is manifesting itself in that. And I mean, of course, there are also technological reasons. Yeah, for this I mean, there's well, things there's but... things whipping it up, right? There's there's things fanning the flames, and there are legitimate things <laughs> that people are upset about, also. And, and but it is this it is this gathering and scapegoating mechanism that I anticipated that I'm seeing, and it is an acting out behavior. And right. you know, I've seen it for years. Listen, I was saying the other day that when I was seeing that shift towards cluster B personality disorders in the late 1980s. I noticed in the 90s that every borderline patient that came in the hospital had a minimum of 20 lawsuits under her belt. They were just they were just wow. they would just act out through the courts. Right. And the and the attorneys finally took them about 15 years, but they 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 uh, encouraged it for many years and then under started realizing these were so-called frivolous lawsuits and you know there's all this slap reform and you know all this stuff that they did because they started waking up to what was going on here. But those same acting out behaviors are alive and well in people in government positions, on social media. It's happening all over the place. So when people act out like that, what's the explanation for the fact that there are obviously societies where it's shittier to be a kid than in the United States, where you don't see that kind of narcissism? Because I remember I was down in Mexico and I was thinking about this stuff at the time. And I was on an island that had not been developed yet. And I saw this woman sitting on a mud floor in a, in a wood house. And her kids were running around all over the place. And I could see that the kids were put together. Everybody was happy. They were well-nourished. They were loving each other. The dad was coming in and hugging the kids. It was, it was not an abusive environment. It was a right. shitty environment. Right. It was a stressful environment. But it was the opposite of abuse. In fact, quite the contrary. The systems that prevent that were intact. There was there was a grandmother there, and a grand, there were multiple generations, intact, long term relationships, stability, shitty economic environment, but able to maintain what kids need to grow and develop. And we've just we just thrown that all out. How? I just said families aren't important. Families don't matter. Families are whatever you say it is. Families, and I'm not saying that the family is a father and a daughter. I'm not saying that. I, a father and a, and a wife or anything. No. But it is intactness of relationships over long periods of time. Right. The, the, the data shows that a single positive relationship with a child after the age of eight can change the trajectory of his or her life. Sustained, you know, after, you know, from age eight to age 18. Sustained relationship. And it can be outside the home, but then it'll be inside the home. But this, this, this sustaining of relations is in the stability and the lack of chaos and 
predictability in the day and day out life. Uh, a guy named Robert Henderson, who's a philosophy, um, actually a social psychology student at Cambridge right now, is about to write a book about his childhood in America. And and I've been promoting friends of mine that are now well into recovery and are professionals. And they're talking about Tyrus, just wrote a book called Just Tyrus about his childhood. And you, you're seeing these same things over and over and over again. And what's interesting is these people that have made it out have a lot of clarity about what it takes to get out. Mm. And it's not at all what we're doing in mm. this country. My dad grew up in France, Drew. He was a, uh, born in a refugee camp during the war in, in Switzerland wow. and, uh, and, and grew up in an orphanage in, in Paris and came to oh. Australia as a refugee. Wow. And, uh, and so I've still got some family back in France. And I must say, when I, when I go back and I see the relationship between parents and kids there, kids seem so much more grown up at such a younger age. Yep. And yep. the families seem so much more, uh, on, in one sense, strict, but in another sense, loving. They don't yep. cop any shit from their firm. kids. Firm. Yeah, yep. firm. Yeah, no, you're going to eat that. You know, this is what we eat. You're going you're gonna to sit there until the meal you, is done. You, you're gonna, so you're not going to have a snack. You're not going to you you bring know. up the French. I have developed this weird <laughs> obsession with the French. <laughs> well, now let me tell Clearly, you why. you're starting with Rousseau you're moving up to the yeah I'm going to move on I'm going to move on and I'm going to skip Derrida and uh, show <laughs> if you'll prevent me uh, and especially that yeah, asshole Foucault, Foucault. yeah you can leave Foucault, oh, Foucault God, Foucault. you know <laughs> by the so, way did you I don't know if you've just as an aside hold that thought but I yeah. don't know if you've read Douglas Murray's latest book but he talks about how uh, he's a British cultural commentator. Uh, I know. He, there, there is good reason to believe now that in the late 60s, when Foucault was living in Tunis, in Tunisia, he routinely raped boys. Uh, oh, and, and he, 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 he's yeah. another Rousseau-esque guy. Look, yeah. he, he set up a system. We are still doing that here in this country where the belief was that there was no such thing as serious mental illness, that institutions caused mental illness. Yeah. Th that has killed innumerable people i can't even count the number so i i don't don't please don't that's our homelessness thing here that's why we have homelessness in southern california continue yeah, the I, thought about about france and i want to loop back to that all right so so you know i've studied french for many many years and, and um the, the 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 language and i've always liked it and I've, I've read a bunch of novels in french and stuff and and whenever i'd go to france i always was <laughs> confused why I couldn't just speak because I, my, my understanding of my, my sort of training in it is, is good, but I could never speak French and I could kind of understand it, but never really understand it. So when I got COVID, uh, I had long haul, I had a bad fog oh, after no. COVID and we were going to go to Greece to just to get away from things. And I thought, you know, I've got this feeling that if I used my brain, like if I went back to the piano or started dancing or learn mm. a language. We're going to Greece. I'm going to learn Greek. And so I went at it for about a month. And in two weeks, my fog cleared, completely cleared. It was unbelievable. It was uncanny. Wow. And when I went to Greece, I, it, it was a rapid sort of acquisition, like, like not my normal relationship with language learning. And when I went there, they kept telling me how great my, my, uh, my accent was like, like, and, and I kept saying, you know, COVID is like getting hit in the head. So maybe, you know, you hear people get hit in the head and they wake up and they speak Chinese. Yeah. 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 So yeah that's I, thought, right. huh, I wonder if something weird like that was happening. So when, when we got back, uh, I, I went, uh, I went, I went, you know what? I'm going to finally get my French together. I'm going to figure out why I don't, well, you know, I, no one ever taught me to speak French. That's really what it boils down to. And so I've been working on that. 
And we, my wife and I went to France last summer and I'm pretty conversant now. And I started talking to young people because they were in the streets every night. They were protesting. Mm. I said, what's going on? You know, what's happening here? And they went, look, they've been, they've been all over us through this pandemic in ways that to us do not feel like they are legitimate in terms of the overreach of this government. They have told us that young people that COVID is not a significant reach, a significant problem for us. You're going to probably do well. And now you're going to force us to take a chemical, force us to take a vaccine? No, that is not what this country was founded on. And they literally, when I was leaving the country, I I started, I was, I was, we were on United Airlines, but there was a French woman behind the counter. So I started talking to her about this stuff and she came out from behind the counter and she showed me her fish. She goes, you have to understand this is serious. Vive la liberté. And I thought, Mm. oh my goodness. I am so attracted to what these kids are doing <laughs> and so opposite of what's going on here. She showed you her what, Drew? What did you say fist, she showed her? Fish. Oh, right. Yeah, her fist. Right. Vive right, la right. liberté, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it was so opposite of what young people are doing here, which is asking for more mandates and control. And it was just it was sort of disgusting to me what, what's happening yeah. here versus what was so attractive about these young people asserting the founding principles of their government, of, yeah, their, of their republic. They say, they would always say, the republic was founded on this. We cannot allow it. And I yeah. thought, you're right. You're right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm attracted to that. So yeah. I'm gonna, I'm, I, I really have fantasized about moving to France for three months and you because know, I'm crazy, so sick of this country. And the crazy thing is they have a higher vaccine uptake than Americans. Because yeah, of course. It, yeah. Of course. Because they're, but they're informed. You notice they were informed. Uh, in here, in this country, Young people don't understand their risk is lower than other populations. We yeah. were they were they were obscured from that. They understand well, the facts. It, friends of mine in the states tell me that it's actually the younger younger people who are the most anxious at, yes. about it, and the older right. colleagues are sort of more. Less we okay. did that to them. We, we injured them. We injured them. We did that to them. We should. It's disgusting. We should be. We should be ashamed of ourselves. What we've done to a whole generation. Yeah. Oh. God. I was in in New York when Omicron was exploding at uh, Christmas yeah. time. Uh, it was my first trip. The, Australia opened the borders. We let the virus in. I, I wanted to go and uh, <laughs> <laughs> wanted to go and let my uh, let my kids uh, go and see their grandparents in the states. So uh, so off we went. And uh, you know I, I don't know what it was like in Los Angeles in in December and January, but uh, certainly in in New York there was you could feel the tension in the air as you walked down you know fifth avenue mm-hmm. because the cases were absolutely off the charts but i was mm-hmm. also in france just be- before that and see i was just visiting all the friends and family who i hadn't seen in two years and uh and this brings us to the, to the point that you just made in passing about the homeless at every uh, in new york if people haven't been there the the city has put in uh these stations where you can recharge your phone and which are wi-fi hotspots so that as you're Mm -hmm. walking around the city your phone will occasionally connect to a free city-wide wi-fi and if you need Mm -hmm. a top-up charge you can plug in every single one is occupied by a homeless person or i don't know if they're homeless but certainly occupied by a human being who is sitting there with a million devices all plugged in uh surfing the web Mm -hmm. and it's impossible to use them uh effectively they're always taken forever and i thought to myself what would happen in sydney like why doesn't that happen in sydney and i thought what would probably happen is that at some point people would get fed up and the cops would come along and I was trying to think, why would that be different from the way the cops would come along in New York? And I thought, in Sydney, the cops would probably come along and say, let us take you somewhere where 
like if you need this level of civilization, then you need a roof over your head. So let's take you to a facility. Yeah. And if the person didn't want to, then pretty soon they'd get the message that every time they sit there plugging all their devices in, they're forced to spend a night in a charity uh, shelter where they Mm -hmm. actually don't want to be. And they'd get the message and they would either stay in the charity shelter or they would stop doing it. That doesn't happen in America, I presume, because you've got activists who would say, who are the police to bully these people and move them along and put them into homeless shelters? They have every right to be out there dominating everybody else's Wi-Fi. And if you... And then they get in this weird thing of uh, you can't this particularly this is in Southern California you can't move them anywhere unless you have a permanent structured housing of quality to offer them. Then you can then if you've got that for all of them, just for them, or you mean it can be communal? Uh, Well, here it costs about five hundred thousand dollars per unit to build them, and we have a hundred thousand homeless people. Just, Just do that math. And, and and by the way, so in San Francisco, here's the great disaster in the whole thing. So it's and this is what this is what everyone doesn't understand because I've, I've treated my patients are in the streets. These are my patients. I've treated this mm. population for thirty years. I, I know what to do. I know exactly how we and and I know they're all going to die if you don't do something. In fact, we're going to start seeing the meth deaths very soon. We're just on right on schedule for that. Is meth on the fact. rise? Oh, meth is ubiquitous on the streets here, but fentanyl deaths are six a day. And the thing about meth is you can do it for a number of years and then all of a sudden people start dying. So yeah. that's the deaths are sort of protein. So in San Francisco, they fixed up some apartment buildings and hotels. They put a bunch of people into them and 10% stayed. Mm. That's it. That's yep. the deal. They won't stay. And yep. if you ask them to do to stop doing drugs, they really won't stay. Yeah. So unless you have a treatment structure available to help them stop doing drugs, they really do this which you're not allowed to do. You can't get near them. You're not allowed to help them. Meaning that the treatment structure would be mandatory and you would pay for it and put I, them through no, it? No, 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 no. No, that, that there would be a team of people that, that you, you would be expected to participate in a treatment program and that, that program would be able to use leverage to keep you going, to keep you in treatment. That's what you, that's what you do with a drug addict. You have to leverage them. They don't want to, no drug addict wants to stop. They want to find a way to keep using. It's always the way it is. And you have to, you have to say, hey, well, you can... You can leave here, but you can't go live back out on the streets. You can't do that because they will do it. <laughs> that's what they will right. do. Right. No, that's what I mean it. by mandatory. Yeah. I mean, not that yeah. you'd force them to take treatment, but that you force no. them to stay. Before They're not allowed to leverage. walk out the I, feel, I, I, consider, I, I think use the words like force and people immediately bristle. It, it's motivation. You, you take a little carrot and a stick. You have a carrot and a stick. We'll move you through. We'll give you vocational rehab. We'll you know, build your community here. We'll have step you through the treatment process and we'll get you back into the world because that's what happens. When people get mm. better from addiction, mm. they do, they have the miracle. That's why I work. That's why I love working in the field. Or if you're so far gone, you're brain injured, you're schizophrenic, you have no resources, you don't want your opiate strung out. There are replacement therapies for you. There are things right. we can give you to make this thing better. Uh, it just makes me feel like both sides are so entrenched in their own positions that there's, why is there, do you have a, some pop psychology reason why the culture <laughs> war you? seems so hot at the moment <laughs> why the culture um, war seems so hot at the I, I, moment it's weird to me i it it's it's because i'm super moderate and i and i see the excesses on both sides you know i was i was reading a tweet from a second epidemiologist or she may have been a jurisprudence scholar or something and she goes you know i'm seeing this the extremes on the left and right but i'm wondering if that's not a political axis maybe there's something else going on and I'm like, yes, that's the personality yeah. disorders. Right, and we I have see. these extremely injured people on both ends 
that probably are 10% of both, you know, right and left. And they're the ones acting out their aggression constantly. Mm. And, and that's terrible. And then Trump, of course, inflamed everything. And then people started running from one side of the boat to the other, which just a horrible, horrible piece of all this. I don't know if you saw John Hyde's piece in The Atlantic recently, but I was speaking to him on the, on the show and he, he makes the point that the, if you analyze, he was citing some, some research about Twitter that uh, there's uh, like a, a 6% of the population or 8% on the left or right that are the sort of the most extreme and they comprise more than 50% of the conversation on, of course, on of Twitter. Course. And I'm just so, then, I'm so you know. glad whenever I read his stuff, I just think, Oh God, thank God Jonathan Heights still talking. I know there's a Cause, grown cause up. He, he gets crucified, you know, and I just think, please, please just keep, keep going. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, they're rare. They're rare these days. Mm-hmm. Let's touch briefly before we go, unless you need to dash off right now about, uh, why you wrote a sex book with your daughter. Oh, um, uh, it was the idea of a publisher and well, they wanted me to write it. And I, and, and it's not even a sex book. We, we actually keep it away from sex sort of, uh, we, we thought they, they wanted consent around the me too era. This was about five years ago pre pre COVID. And there was a lot of anxiety, particularly young people around how, you know, consent, you know, what, how do you do that? What do I know when I've got consent? What is it? How do I? And so we wanted to take it away from the medical legal. We wanted to take it away from the sort of, we didn't want it to, there were lots of great books out there about sexuality and, and, um, and, and consent. We wanted to talk about navigating healthy relationships, really. So we talked about, you know, everything, all kinds of relationships and how consent enters into it. Terrific. Drew, it's lovely to meet you. Thanks for the chat. And mine too. Lovely to meet you as well. And I, I love Sydney, by the way. I'm, oh, we, great. Yeah. I had the great, uh, my son actually music directed a I mean, you may have heard about it when I was there at the at the opera center. They had Thrones the musical, and he was the music oh. director for that. And uh, and he lived there for a month over on the rocks. And we had the oh, good terrific. fortune of staying on the rocks when we were there. Right. And just just what a wonderful city! And I, it was one of the great surprises, frankly, for me in terms of uh, me traveling around the world. Uh, in term, there's just the the people, the the, the way the mm. city functions. It's just a lovely place. We do hide it under a bushel a little bit. We've, uh, for some reason, Australia has decided to sell itself as Crocodile Dundee and the uh, the Crocodile there, there's Hunter. There's that, and, and there's just that it seemed like oh, another city, you know. But but no, it's very special. It's a very special yeah. city, and, and it, it is a um, wonderful feel to it. So I'd love to come back. Uh, please do, please yep. do. And if uh, if you do, then uh, I'll buy you a beer. Done. You owe me one. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Thanks, Drew. Yeah. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.